Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Well, welcome to Reputations in Crisis. My name is Mike Paul. Let me tell you about today's guests. Renowned transformation experts Stephen Bowen and Terry Lyles have unveiled their latest book, Becoming Invaluable, a dynamic guide to reaching unparalleled human potential. Drawing from their extensive corporate experience, this book offers transformative insights for personal and professional growth, providing readers with practical steps to overcome challenges, achieve career goals, and establish harmonious work-life synergies. Bowen, the visionary and founder and former CEO of the global consultancy, Mainpoint, brings more than 30 years of experience, while Dr. Lyles, the acclaimed stress doctor, offers profound psychological and physiological tools. Together, they unveil a multidimensional approach to becoming invaluable, emphasizing attributes such as knowledge, skills, attitude, health, and strength. Well, thank you both for being here. I'm going to start with a first important question, I think. Becoming invaluable has a subhead. Terry, tell us what that subhead is and what it means. Well, how we started on this venture, Mike, was really interesting. It, it came down to the word invaluable. In other words, almost become irreplaceable. So we found out three attributes from the word itself, invaluable, which means anyone, you, are able to add value to yourself, and it means health, strength, and worth combined together, which creates our self-worth or our invaluableness. That's great. Steve, I'm going to ask you first, and then I'll get back to Terry. If I walk away from this interview, and I don't know this particular fact that you're going to explain to us, the interview would be a waste. What is the one thing that you want to make sure that we understand at the top of the interview if we were to read the book? There's a lot in it, but what's the most important tip or tool that, we, from your view that we must understand from the book? I, I love the question, Mike, because there is one thing that I hope that people get out of this book, and that is to understand by investing in yourself, you make the most important, the single biggest investment you make in your entire life. And that's what people don't keep in front of them many days. And that's what we hope they walk away with and learning how to do that. So let me be very specific. There's a million different ways of investing in self. From your book's expertise, what particular area of investment are we talking about? Well, we're talking about investing in a number of different attributes. Actually, we identify five different personal attributes to invest right. in. I'll just highlight three, and I'll let Terry highlight two. The three I would highlight is knowledge, which is what you need to know to do what you're 
job vocation is skills, which is what you do with what you know, and attitude is how you feel about what you do. And focusing on the development of those three fundamental attributes changes our perspective on ourselves. And in fact, if you think about it, if our knowledge and skills aren't well developed enough, we actually take away from our own attitude in terms of how we feel about ourselves. So with that, that kind of ties over to our health and strength piece, Terry. Yeah, and that's the other quadrant. So we have health, strength that creates this process that we call self-worth, which is this invaluableness. So health and strength, mind, body, health, mind, body, strength. And the caveat is you can have strength, but if you don't have flexibility, you're crippled. So we talk about what is flexibility mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. That's why there's wars, rumors of wars. That's why there's political uprising, because we're not always flexible on what you believe versus what I believe. So we address how to have strength and health, but also have flexibility to go between what you may not totally understand or believe, but are willing to have tolerance for. So perfect segue to a hypothetical question. I'm a CEO of a Fortune 10 company. I'm feeling the pressure from my employees, partners, shareholders all over the world that this thing called the Israel-Hamas war needs attention. And I can't just sit on the sidelines. I've tried, but the pressure is too hot now. I have to say something on behalf of the company. What's your advice to me? And I'll start with Steve first, and then we'll go to Terry. I would simply say to that CEO, if they truly are a global company and he feels that or she feels that pressure to speak to the to address this issue, is very simply put, our job in the it of their company is to do what we do. It's not to pass judgment on Hamas or to pass judgment on Israel or anyone else, quite frankly, in the world. It's for us to focus on what we're all about at this company. It's to focus on our teamwork. And most importantly, if you focus on yourself, then you focus on developing that value and you add to what we're all about and you make things better what and where you can. And that's how I would simply put it. So let me throw in another variable, Terry. That's not what I'm talking about. I am Jewish. I am, I have family in Israel. This pain is real. I know people that have died. I'm not talking about products. I'm not talking about traditional marketing. I'm not even talking about traditional gains as a shareholder. I'm saying I'm your employee. Oh, and then I get interrupted. Somebody else wants to chime in. I'm Muslim. I have people that have died too. You're talking about hostages on your side from a Jewish perspective. I'm talking about children and mothers who are related to my family that have died, that were living in Gaza, who believe they don't have a home anymore and that they might not ever be able to come back. And my pain is as equal to yours as a Jewish person, as someone that has a Muslim and Palestinian background. And what I've been hearing on the news lately is everything's all about Israel. I can't focus on work. I'm your employee. 
And I want you to chime in to say something because I've heard some companies already give their opinions. I've heard some companies even get trouble for that opinion. I've heard some companies are getting in trouble for just sitting on the sidelines. I'm telling you in an email that's coming from a number of different employees in the hundreds that these are our backgrounds. We work for you. Maybe you didn't know who we were before. You certainly know who we are now. We're part of your company. And you keep saying you want to treat us like family. Well, Dad, what's your answer? Well, I think it's humanity. I mean, listen, war is ugly. You know, there's always two or three sides to war. War is another means of politics gone wrong. So it is what it is. And if if our employees are human beings and not bots, I care about all of you. So it's about, listen, I sympathize whether you're Israeli, Palestinian, whether you're just in the middle and you have both sides. Listen, if a company wants to be a political standard, then they make that choice. Maybe they're a Jewish company. Maybe they're a Christian company. Maybe they're a Palestinian company. Maybe they're just a global company. I think we say, look, we got your backs. We love you as our employees. We're here to help you, support you, listen to you, and we'll share that message. We just don't need to take a side necessarily unless it literally impacts what we're doing, like our business is being kicked out of that war zone. That's a different story. You know, I spent three months at ground zero. So you know what? Who was at fault? You know, all I know is people suffered, people died. I was there and called to help people who lived. Well, I like that part of the answer. I'd be careful to say we're not taking a side because in saying what you're saying, just to your people is taking a side. Um, and you need to know who works for you. There's no such thing, in my professional opinion, as a reputation and branding expert. There's no, there's no way that you could say that you're just a Palestinian company or an Israeli company, even if you are within those countries or within those territories with your business. Your business is those that work for you. And if somebody of different backgrounds, including someone who is not any of the backgrounds we've talked about thus far, for example, Christians, they have a viewpoint on this too. But the answer you gave that is absolutely 100% correct is that we feel your pain if you are in pain as an individual and as an employee. And we're sorry for that pain that you're going through. And listen, you're exactly right. And that's what Steve and I have addressed in this book, even because we've talked about this from the political side in the book. And, you know, politics are different sides of a solution. And we we converse about this, about I, we, and yet. I is the individuals. We are the teams. It is the organization, the country, the movement, um, the sport team. I don't care what your it is. That's the overall organization. I think we've become so I-focused and narcissistic, we have forgotten what the it is. It's our organization. It's our community, whether our, our company, our neighborhood, our, our nation, nations at large. And so many people, we just focus on I, 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 I. That's the world we live in now. And you know what? There's an it involved. We are teams. So I think we have to consider the it and that we are all a part of the it. We're a global community. How do we survive and thrive together? And it's ugly. Listen, you know, this is ugly. But how do we find ways between racial wars, divisions of religion, wars and rumors of wars that keep happening? Hey, listen, it is what it is. How do we find 
ways to find common ground. And if we can't, we're still people. Here's what I see that people ignore all the time. People ignore that, you know, whatever the group is, if they're truly operating from a, a purpose and a set of values that has alignment, this is what we address in chapter three of our book, Becoming Invaluable. If they're truly operating from that perspective and helping themselves to actually improve their value in the world, who are we to judge whether they're right or wrong? I don't think we can in today's world. I think you have to accept and you choose what team you want to be on. So if you have yourself, the I culture that Terry's talking about, <clears throat> if you have yourself aligned and you choose a team to be on and you become part of an it, then that's how you live and that's what you choose. And if you're operating in that fashion and contributing back to the world, who are we to judge one way or the other? And as a leader of a company, what I see many leaders do is they take a side and they take a side that they think advantages themselves, their shareholders, their revenue, and it's the wrong side to take. The right side to take is humans are difficult and we have to find a way to coexist. And that's what we hope to help by helping everyone contribute greater value to the world. Well, that is so profound because everything you just talked about is now measurable, right? We can measure the impact of, for example, not having excellent EQ skills. Well, what is that? Emotional intelligence. Well, what is that? I'll tell you this, every topic we've talked about thus far on this program is deeply, deeply, deeply emotional from a crisis and stress perspective. And here's what happens in my business, and I'd love for you guys to, to answer back to this. When the equation that I talk about with clients from a crisis perspective is fairly simple. If that, this deals with business, this deals with sports, this deals with politics, it deals with NGOs, this deals with individuals and organizations. And by the way, brands are people, not buildings and, and graphics, right? The, one of the biggest rules I utilize in my business, and it sounds like it's at the core of your book as well, is when there's an emotional crisis, you have to have an emotional solution. Now, what's the opposite of that? Having a boilerplate response from a corporate perspective, for example, that means nothing. And I won't just say that. I'll put data up on the board of competitors in their space. I'll put data on their board of a top Fortune 10 company. I'll put data on the board of some of the, the best successful those organizations that follow the best practices approach to doing things that are considered some of the best brands in the world, not just an opinion, I've got to back it up with evidence. How do you do so from a willitude perspective? What is willitude? And then how do you measure it? Because if the goal is to be invaluable, measurement has to be involved with your solutions. Terry and I developed this, this concept of the human capital equation, which we show in a triangle. And one side of it is willitude and the other side is navigation. And Terry kind of takes the navigation, I kind of take the willitude. So will is willitude is simply the formation of two words, will and fortitude. So the the will and the fortitude to see things through, to the the desire to see the outcome that you've set for yourself. Whatever your avocation, vocation, career is, whatever the organization's approach is, it's then having 
the willpower and the fortitude to deal with the obstacles that you run into as you move along. But I want to tie this willitude back to one very important thing. You said, Mike, brands begin with people. I couldn't agree more. And I think it even goes deeper than that inside the people. If you have a group of people that have the same purpose and the same set of values and the same vision, that's where brand really begins. Because brands don't begin externally. They begin internally in a company. And so when you can rally the troops around a purpose, values, and vision set that enhances each individual, you enhance your brand. And so from my perspective, the willitude is being able to have the understanding to actually take those action steps and deeply ingrain that purpose, values, and vision into your organization. And I see most of that being placards on the wall rather than deeply ingrained in the everyday culture of an organization. I don't know, uh, Mike or Terry, I, that's just a simple perspective on willitude. And, and then it ties to the ability of the organization to see it through. Terry, what's your opinion of willitude? And can you give us a tip that's tied to it that's helpful from the book? Well, Steve and I, like I said, we created two words, willitude and navigotiate. So uh, my opinion is the same as Steve's on willitude. You have to have a willingness, an I will attitude to be able to accomplish anything. And that's what invaluable means. In is me. I have to create value for myself, my team, and my organization. Navigotiate is the other word up the triangle. So on one side of the triangle, we have willitude. The other side, we have navigotiate. And that's how you become health, strength, and worth at the top. So you create that worth, but you have to navigotiate a willitude to get there. So what does navigotiate mean? Again, it's two words put together. Sometimes I navigate people, I negotiate situations. Sometimes I'm, I'm negotiating situations, I'm navigating people. It depends on the day, it depends on the call. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's that process of knowing when to navigate a person or a situation. So let's dive in uh, with two examples. The first one, we now post-pandemic or in the tail end of the pandemic, is probably more accurate because people are still getting sick all over the world and also not getting their shots, which is a whole nother debate. Um, but we have this thing called hybrid work, virtual work, and remote work. And we still have on average, let's say in the United States, people more comfortable with only coming in two days out of a week. We've heard things like you can't create a corporate culture with a virtual workforce, which is nonsense because there's companies and countries who've been doing it way longer than the pandemic. There's data and examples of which I've shown my clients. But from your book's perspective and looking at the examples and rules you were just talking about, I'm a CEO and a board and I come to you and say, I hate this hybrid workforce stuff I hate anyone virtually working from home. I like seeing them in the office. That's the way that I've always done it. I'm 75 years old. I'm the CEO of this company. And darn it, you're going to come into the office now at least four days a week. What's your advice? Because then they also add, oh, by the way, we started it a month ago and people are upset. Well, this is like one of my favorite subjects in the world, Mike. And, and I'll tell you why. 
because when I created my company 20 years ago, I didn't have a bunch of employees in an office. We're a consulting firm. We did supply chain consulting. And we had a combination of employees and contractors all around the world as it grew. And no one was ever in one place at one time. So these old attitudes are simply a roadblock that they create for themselves of not understanding how to embrace a different environment. And so I welcomed this environment. I loved it. And so what did that mean? I mean, I had to be on the road and go see the people. It meant that I had to find different ways to gather people together. I had to find a way to provide that purpose, set of values, and vision to these folks, even though they were spread all over the world, and half of them weren't employees, they were contractors, but I wanted them to feel like they were employees, and they were really talented people. So in today's world, when you look at this, the mentality that we have of that you have to have some great big office building and, a, and, and everybody in the office in order to actually have a culture in your company is a misnomer. It's a complete misnomer. I gotta interject strongly. We know that. They still feel that way. The majority of CEOs that are over 65 years old, at risk of being called an ageist, have an attitude that, thank you for that information. That's not why I hired you. I'm telling you, this is what I'm doing. You could call it a post-World War II paradigm and it's time to pivot. You could say that for three decades, at least two, that there are examples all over the world that have done this successfully. And yeah, I know there was Accenture before they were called an Accenture. And they were they had teams of people, senior folks as consultants on the road decades ago and only coming back on Friday to get their schedule together and going back on the road and with, were with the client constantly. I know all those examples. I've been a CEO for the last 20 years. I'm telling you, I'm not changing. So then what are the, Terry, consequences that you put up on a board to that attitude? Because it's not a few. We're talking about hundreds of the top CEOs in the Fortune 500 have this attitude in board meetings and in client meetings and in employee summits today. Well, listen, I, I was going to take it over anyway, if you didn't ask me to, because, you know, this is this is right up my alley, too. Listen, performance is everything. If I'm making my numbers and you never see me, do you care if you're making money, if I make you money? I think you're cool with that. However, if that's your mindset, there's other people that will hire me and I'll go to your biggest competitors and I'll do the same thing. So, look, we can do this this way. We can do it that way. If I'm performing under that pressure and I'm making money for the company and you're cool with that, great. If you're not. So let me let me interject again. I love this debate. The data says clearly across the industry, across the world, those that had to pivot, which was everybody, because office towers were shut down. We're talking about corporations that have 75 offices in 53 countries big or bigger, right? And the data came back clearly after several years of the pandemic. Oh my gosh, we're making money. We've got lights on in buildings that are empty and we're still making money. How is that? Let's peel back the, the data. Oh, people are getting up at six o'clock in their underwear with their own phone 
or their iPad, and they've already begun work. They're not on a train. Oh, they're not commuting in an hour and a half. Oh, they took a half hour to bring their kid to school, and they still had two hours' work done before 9 o'clock in the morning. And listen, that's an it problem. That's not an I or a we problem. So if the organization is paying too much lease for a building that's now antiquated, that ain't my problem. You pay me to produce, I produce, you use the money however you like. I train professional athletes and you either won or you lost. It's W or L. There's a big factor that gets added. We want you to shut some of those offices or get smaller spaces because all of us have families and we need you to pay more for childcare. Because if you want me to continue to be effective and produce and be invaluable, you've got to pivot with the expenses from those buildings. I don't even need the credit anymore for my monthly commuter ticket to get on a train. Thank you. Whether it's subway or major public transportation, don't need it. But childcare is through the roof. What say you from a becoming invaluable perspective for corporate directors today from a stress management perspective and from some of the tips from your book? Give me the top tip to help these corporate directors that's tied to a tip or rule from your book and how to best handle the amount of risk they personally and enterprise-wide are putting on shareholders and stakeholders. I have a very simple message for any of the board members and call me an agent right along with you, Mike. We have the same darn problem with the United States of America. We're potentially looking at a couple of octogenarians as our president and they're out of touch, okay? They're out of touch. And I, I don't care what you say. If you look at what a 20, 30, 40 year old knows about the world of cybersecurity compared to what a 50, 60, 70 year old, forget about any formal programs, forget about education, forget about all of it. There's no comparison. It's absolutely uncomparable. But yet, do you see a 38 year old on very many boards that is a cybersecurity specialist? You're beginning to see a little bit of it, but not nearly enough. So I'm using your cybersecurity as an example here. It ties right back to the same issue though. The same issue we were talking about before, about in the office, out of the office, this new work environment, and the preconceived ideas that people have about this, it's the exact same problem. And you know what? People think they have the experience, but until they've done it, they don't really know. So my cybersecurity example is, you might have gone to a seminar, but unless you've been doing cybersecurity for a period of time, several years, you don't really know. Just like if you don't know what it's like to run a company, I did for 20 years with a completely dispersed organization where they don't even come in the office on Fridays, like you were mentioning about a, a bigger firms used to do, where they don't even come in the office on Fridays. Until you've done that and learned how to do it, you don't know how to do it. And so it's time for people to learn. And that I don't care what your age is, you have to learn. So that's from the kind of board perspective, Terry. Boards. Shifting paradigm, post-World War II paradigm, dying. Office towers, dying. Commuting, dying. Huge impacts to corporate life for anyone working in a global or national or regional corporation. 
What is the advice that you give those corporate board directors today that has an impact from some of the tips from your book? Chapter seven, open your mind. Open your mind and create self-worth, not just for you, but for your I, we, and it, for your organization. And if it takes a 40-year-old on the board or a 30-year-old who has the most experience, male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, who cares? We need information. The world is being jigged right now by understanding that no matter where you've come from or what you have experienced, that may not be enough. You know, I train race car drivers and they need spotters because they can't turn their heads and they look through a mirror this big on the side. And they can't see what's behind them. So the spotters telling them what's in their blind spots. Most boards I've been on and you've been on and Steve is on. Listen, they don't know what their blind spots are. And our job as consultants and it being invaluable and becoming invaluable is saying, look, you may have a blind spot. You pay me to tell you, you can do what you want. You know what I mean? So I'm married. If I don't understand, I got a young child, you know, that's in school. If I can't figure out my phone, I hand it to him. He hands it back to me. He already figured it out. He just got a raise. I don't have to read the book. He just figured it out. You know what? Let's gift people what they're good at because none of us grew up with technology at that age. Our kids today are growing up with technology from infancy. They're holding a phone. They're doing computer work. We, I think the cultural change has to be in boardrooms of America and across the world is look at what Silicon Valley did 20 plus years ago. All these young guys in blue jeans and t-shirts and people laughed at them. What did they know? Well, you know what? I don't know, but they made a lot of money. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. And they're still doing really well. So it's a mindset. Like you said, it's this change that has to happen. We address that in the book that if you're not willing to reach beyond what you know, you can't become invaluable because you don't know what you don't know. In chapter five, where we talk about knowledge and skills, why a board member needs to open up their mind to the different ages, the different ethnicities, whatever it might be that is needed in that corporation, because how we accumulate our knowledge and how we accumulate our skills come in multitudes of ways. And you need those exposures for the companies, for the boards, for the different disciplines within those companies. And that's what we explain in the book is how do people actually go about accumulating this knowledge and skill, which can really assist in these situations. Gentlemen, powerful stuff. Thank you so much for being on Reputations in Crisis. Let's hope people listen to these tips so that they don't continue in crisis, because sadly there are a lot of leaders in various sectors who need this great advice that's in your book. Thank you. And this week's t-shirt is Stop Violence Against Women. As we know, our population is more than 50% women. Violence against women continues in all forms, including in war, including here at home. Let's be as supportive as we can for this important cause. Thank you. The authors of the book, Becoming Invaluable, certainly had some important messages for us today. One that I will include, sometimes the best way to become invaluable is to understand when it's time to go, when it's time to step down from a board, 
when it's time to step down from leadership, including C-suite positions. Your legacy is also impacted by that choice. Know when it's time to end, but still be important to help others, but maybe not with your seat on a board or your seat in the C-suite. So important for leaders everywhere to understand that important tip. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Reputations in Crisis. And remember, less head work, more heart work, peace. And please follow us on YouTube for our digital show. And also follow us in podcast form digitally on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Have a terrific week, and we'll see you soon.